You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We'd like to thank our friends at Movement and ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast. I'll tell you more about these great companies later, but first, let's meet our guests. So we're joined today by Baron von Koska, who's the acting director of the Allied Museum in Berlin which is a must-see if you find yourself over there. Along with journalist Sven Felix Kellerhoff, Byrne is also the author of Capital of Spies, Secret Services in Berlin in the Cold War, which is still only released in German, unfortunately. So maybe we can get an English-language copy of that at some point. However, one can get many of the educational publications from the Allied Museum in English from their website, and the museum itself is language-friendly, as I believe everything is trilingual. So, Baron, thank you for joining us here on SpyCast. Uh, welcome to the United States. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So, Berlin, as, as many people know, uh, was central to the Cold War. I mean, some historians have even argued that it was the foundation of the Cold War divide. I want to ask you a little bit about that time period, because the Allied Museum really picks up, you know, just at the end of the war, moving into this divided Germany era. How much is it true, the conventional wisdom, that the divided city itself became really ground zero for espionage between the West and the Eastern Bloc? Well, in my opinion, um, the first clash of the two superpowers uh, and the two sides actually was the Berlin blockade and the Berlin airlift. So they all four came as allied army who freed Germany from uh, National Socialists and Hitler, but they discovered... uh, very early uh, in '46, uh, that uh, they had different ideas how Germany should develop. So basically in '47, the split starts already and it was obvious to everybody in 1948 uh, when the Berlin blockade came and the Allies erected a Berlin airlift to uh, save the city. So I think that was the, the turning point also in Allied uh, policy 
So when I go through General Clay's, Lucius de Clay's early papers, uh, late 45, early 46, he don't want to hear anything about uh, the evil Russians. He still wants to be... Um, uh, he wants to arrange things with them. They were sitting together in the Allied Comunatura and the, the Allied Council to deal with Germany as a whole and with Berlin, the greater area of Berlin. And they had to do that together. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. So in the very early months and uh, in the first one or two years, actually, uh, the Western powers were really friendly to the Soviet side and they were really, really thinking they could cope with them and find some deals uh, for Germany. But obviously, 48, 49, that system broke down, and then it was clear that the Soviet side would be the new enemy. Well, Berlin itself, I mean, we do have some younger listeners who, who don't know a world where there was an East Germany and a West Germany. Uh, but I, I assume they've seen a map of the time during the Cold War, and they understand that Berlin was deep inside East Germany inside, you know, occupied territory. And in many ways, this is a double-edged sword for the Soviets. On one hand, as Nikita Khrushchev famously said, uh, whenever he wanted to make the West squirm, he could just squeeze Berlin. I'm not going to use the language he used, a little more uh, raunchy than that. But at the same time, it was a kind of a key outpost in the East for the Allies. Uh, and before the wall went up, it was very easy for spies, mm -hmm. for intelligence officers to move into the East through Berlin. That's right. Berlin, as I just said, had the disadvantage that it was totally, completely lying in the Soviet zone, which became the GDR later. So that is a problem. Uh, the main problem is access, access to Berlin. Uh, the positive thing about Berlin, especially for the Western forces, they, because Berlin was so deep in the east, they had an outpost there, and from there they could monitor things that were going on uh, on the Soviet side and on the Russian side, on the Polish side, uh, Czechoslovakian side. So in, in the uh, Warsaw Pact uh, countries, much easier than they could from, from uh, West Germany or elsewhere. We've talked about the Soviets on one side and the British, French, and the Americans on the other, but we haven't really talked a lot about those in, of Western Germany and those of Eastern Germany. Mm -hmm. How important was it at the very earliest time to begin to integrate the German forces into these alliances, whether it's the uh, the Galen organization on the West or what would turn into you know East German intelligence and the Stasi and everything on the East. I mean, it, obviously, there's denazification issues that had to happen right after the war ended, but how soon thereafter was it happening simultaneously that these German organizations were integrated into the defense of both sides? Well, the Western powers, French, British, and Americans very quickly discovered that they would need the Germans in some way. And if I, meet, if, I, if I talk about Germans, I obviously mean the ones who served in the Third Reich. Uh, there were no others. <laughs> others were too young. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, they, they need the expertise of these officers. Uh, and for that reason, um, Obviously, those officers who are working in the army military um, area in the Third Reich uh, very quickly uh, were also deployed uh, in the Bundeswehr and in other organizations. You just mentioned uh, the Galen organization that later was the Bundesnachrichtendienst, the BND. 
Uh, and well, I, I could I can't blame them. You know, they were just looking for the best qualified persons and. Uh, like um, the famous uh, rocket engineer uh, Werner von Braun, who came to the United States and became um, a sec second chief of the NASA. Well, uh, the other countries as well uh, employed former um, NS personnel. Well, especially in the case of intelligence about the Soviet Union, as all the other Americans and the Soviets were tight allies during the war, we knew very little about the geography, about the you know the population. Of the Soviets because they moved everything around during the war, and again we talked about Galen. I mean, the 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 German, the Nazi German army and their intelligence agency, the Abwehr, they knew way more than we did about our now new adversary, the Soviet Union. We really had no choice but to integrate them into our system. And also, the Germans were fighting the Soviet army already a few years ago. So, of course, they had special knowledge uh, on the Soviet Union. And, well, the Western uh, allies, uh, you know, get, get the best out of this special knowledge the German had. Let me ask you about an intelligence operation that, that some people know about, others don't. Uh, when, if you visit the Allied Museum, you learn a lot about it. If you visit our new museum uh, after next year, you're going you're gonna to learn something about it as well, thanks, actually, to the Allied Museum and, and Baron sitting here in front of me. And um, that's the Berlin Tunnel and Operation Gold. Um, this is one of the the most undertold stories of this time period because uh, kind of the engineering marvel and, and, and kind of industrious in the conception, the idea of doing something that, and we'll talk about this, if, if there wasn't a, uh, a double agent in the midst of British intelligence, this could have been the most successful singles intelligence operation maybe in history. Indeed, the tunnel is uh, incredible. If you look at the operation itself, um, and uh, the idea behind it and, and how they actually execute the operation, that was all marvelous. So uh, to begin with, um, uh, when the British were occupying Vienna, uh, that's another city that was occupied by all four nations, British, American, French, and the Soviet, the British had roughly seven s points where they... Uh, dubbed or listened to Soviet telephone conversation in Vienna. Usually that was done in the cellar, but they also have one or two tunnels in Viela, Vienna. But if I say tunnel, the longest one was approximately seven or eight, less than ten meters. Uh, so the idea came from the British in Vienna uh, taping Soviet telephone conversation. So it was obvious that the, uh, that the thought came up, so why can't we do something similar in Berlin? So they were looking for a spot where uh, um, a good position is closest to the telephone conversation, and the spot was found in 1953, and then the planning began to dig a tunnel five meters deep, more than 400 meters long, from West Berlin into East Berlin, and at the end of the tunnel, they taped the telephone conversation of the Soviet military. And the whole time the Soviets knew this was happening. Yeah, that's, that's a cruel thing. So you can imagine uh, how difficult it is to dig a tunnel uh, that is approximately, that's uh, nearly two meters in dimension, so uh, a man could easily walk through it, uh, five meters deep, four meters long, 
uh, it took them more than one year to dig the tunnel itself. So the operation planning, as I said, started in 53. The tunnel was finished in 56. It cost a cost a lot of money, $6.7 million. At the time, that was a lot of money. Today, it's peanuts, I know. <laughs> but at the time, that was a, a huge amount of money. And also the manpower that was involved is incredible. And and the really, so John Le Carré, if John Le Carré would write it in a book, you would say, oh, man, that's fiction. But, you know, in Berlin, that was truth. Uh, that a double agent, a British uh, spy called George Blake, told the Russians even before the tunnel was built. Well, that, and that made such a difficult decision for the Soviets because if they had blown the tunnel from the beginning, it would have been pretty, pretty obvious that they may not have led directly to Blake, but it would have been pretty obvious there was a mole somewhere. That's right. So actually, uh, indeed, uh, the Soviet took the decision when their um, officer in London came back with the information that the other side is planning a tunnel. Uh, the KGB now had to decide what to do. They had two options. Uh, option one, to protect their new source, George Blake, the top-ranking uh, British um, intelligence, or if they tell their own men in Berlin that the other side is listening. And they decided to protect their new top spy, George Blake. Oh, and that, which means that even though this intelligence operation was blown before it began, there was still an extraordinary amount of intelligence gained from a mission that should never have worked in the first place. Because, well, the, the Soviets trying to prevent uh, that top information went through the tunnel. But uh, the, the fact is there was no false information uh, going through the tunnel uh, because on one hand, it's very difficult to produce good false information. Uh, and on the other hand, um, um, it's true that the Western uh, part of the Soviets in East Berlin didn't know that the other side was listening, even though the Soviet uh, didn't send uh, top messages through uh, the tunnel communications, through their usual communications. But uh, as I learned from military today, even it's impossible to have, uh, you know, security on the phone is, is a subject for every nation right. in the military. And amazingly enough, uh, what I've heard that uh, the most uh, interesting things came when the high-ranking officers' wives were talking on the phone back to Moscow to their relatives, to their friends, about their husbands and the problems their yeah. high-ranking officers' husbands in Germany, in East Germany, have. So a lot of information came from there. And there are other bits and pieces uh, which were pretty interesting. But on the other hand, as you say, th the big gold nugget uh, did not went through the tunnel mm -hmm. because the Soviet side knew right from the beginning. What, what made them finally decide to shut it down? Well, the decision to discover it at some point point was was obvious so they needed a good opportunity to discover the tunnel so the other side would not notice that uh, this discovery was on purpose so they wait until spring 1956 uh, heavy rain um, and uh, one of the lines they, they tapped they taped uh, sorry they dubbed three lines uh, with more than 100 telef single telephone lines in one. So altogether, 
approximately they were listening to 300 single lines run, running in three um, in three big lines. And one of the big lines was a bit dodgy and um, it was no surprise that after heavy rain this uh, one huge line wasn't working so they sent uh, telephone operators in East Germany to the place to look at the telephone line and they discovered the tunnel. And that was really... F the, the guys on the spot had no clue what they found. Uh, and because the American side could not only listen to what happened at the other side of the tunnel, the, the, the warehouse where the tunnel starts was so close that with their binoculars they could actually see what's happening on the other side. And uh, it was so perfectly done that the Americans had no clue that uh, this tunnel was found on purpose on that day because it was a day when Khrushchev was on his first state visit in Great Britain and he said, uh, blame the Americans when you discover the tunnel and I will, you know, deal with the British when I'm on the state visit uh, for the Suez crisis, Suez crisis right. in 56. We'll have more with Barron in a moment, but let me take a minute to tell you about Movement. Movement Watches, spelled M-V-M-T but pronounced Movement, was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 1 million watches sold to customers in over 160 countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. The story of this company's beginning is pretty amazing. And as someone who has worked to use word of mouth and social media to build SpyCast brand, I really took to this story. In 2013, two watch enthusiasts dropped out of college with the dream of reinventing the watch industry. Tired of big brand markups, the duo set out to create a direct-to-consumer model. And since 2013, they've really come far. The watches are absolutely gorgeous, both men's and women's watches. I told you this before, but when I went on their website to check out the watches, a huge argument broke out in my office about which one looked the best. Even though I eventually would choose a single watch, there were so many that I would love to have. And the great part is, if I want another one, I can afford it. So these movement watches start at just $95. At a department store, you're looking at $400 to $500 for a watch of this quality. Movement figured out by this selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman in retail markup, providing us the best possible price. Classic design, quality construction, and stylized minimalism. And again, over 1 million watches sold in over 160 countries. So get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movement.com slash spycast. That's mvmt.com slash spycast. The watch I have is a really clean design. Seriously, I've been getting compliments on it ever since I put it on. So now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to movement.com slash spycast. Join the movement. So once the tunnel was dug up, where did the pieces of it go? And that, that was a mystery for a long time, right? It was. When I did an exhibition, a special exhibition on the tunnel in uh, 2006, I was the opinion that the pieces were melted uh, because it was good steel, uh, 400 meters, tons and tons of good steel, and I got the impression that it was melted and be reused by the East German side, uh, which would be also a propaganda thing because there are a prominent saying that says Schwerter zu Flugscharen that's a very prominent uh, communist saying that means weapons to agriculture mm -hmm. 
Swords in the Plowshares. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I had no clue, uh, no indication that the tunnel was used uh, otherwise. Uh, but a few years later, I got a phone call uh, from a guy that says, uh, I have the feeling there are pieces of the tunnel here in the forest of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, which is 100 kilometers away from Berlin. Uh, and I was a bit surprised to hear that. The next day, I went there. And obviously, uh, with first glimpse, it was obvious that these were actually original pieces from the Berlin Spy Tunnel. And what this is kind of getting a little bit inside museum curation. Uh, what tipped you off that they weren't just big pieces of hunk and metal? Well, the the, the inside of a Berlin Spy Tunnel is uh, is different to another uh, steel tube uh, because there were sandbags. Uh, to stabilize the tunnel and to to um, make uh, humidity inside the tunnel right. better. So uh, and these uh, sandbags had to be fixed at the tunnel side. And f for fixing those sandbags, there there are special points and bullets in the tunnel itself. Uh, so you, you can see at once uh, that this is the, t the original tunnel. Mm -hmm. And since 20 years, I'm, I'm passing the tunnel two or three times a day, daily. <laughs> <laughs> so I know how the Berlin Spy Tunnel looks like. And, uh, and it was a surprise for, for me as a curator as well to discover that actually nearly the whole tunnel, the whole 300 meters on the East German side were not destroyed, most of it, went to the East German pioneers and uh, they were distributed amongst East Germany to pioneers companies who used them for their maneuvers. Pioneers are digging, digging holes in the ground and underneath they had their commando uh, stands where the highest ranking officers are sitting, sitting below and giving orders to the others uh, working in the forest. And uh, for many, many years, uh, the tunnel in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, 100 kilometers away from Berlin, was exactly used for this, for maneuvers of, of East German pioneers. So you said that almost all of the 300 meters that was inside East Germany remained. Uh, where are the pieces now? Are they still strewn around? Have they been basically all found? Uh, do you have a pretty good idea of where they all are? Yeah. Some of them were actually used and digged into the ground and others were lying around in East German barracks for decades. <laughs> I, I met someone who've seen him as, them as early as the late 70s, early 80s. These pieces were still lying around and everybody knew, oh, they are from Berlin, that, well, that was a tunnel, and but nobody, you know, they're just lying there and they don't have a clue what to do with it. And after unification, uh, most of these East German barracks shut down and most of these tunnel pieces ended up uh, with a, a steel dealer. So they were destroyed or, or, making, um, or given away and destroyed, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about another major landmark that is now in pieces around the world, and that, of course, is the Berlin Wall. Um, as we talked about when, when right after the war, it was very easy to move from uh, Berlin into the Eastern Bloc uh, from the Western side. The wall obviously ends this. Does essentially the building of the wall end 
any real ability to do human intelligence collection against the Eastern Bloc, um, or is there still opportunities to move into the East uh, from West Berlin? Well, the building of the wall was a major cut. So, as you said correctly, before the wall was erected, one could move from East Germany to West Germany, from West Germany to East Germany pretty pretty easily. That also is true for uh, espionage, so for spies and agents. So that totally ended with the building of the wall. But even though there were um, holes uh, that, that could be used but uh, not very good ones. For example, uh, there were military missions that were going daily from West Berlin to East Berlin. And the missions were erected in 1947-1946 with the Soviet Union to strengthen the communication on the military level. But from 1950 onwards, everybody knew that the missions, the three Western powers mission in Potsdam in East Germany as well as the Soviet mission in West Germany they just did intelligence work so that was one uh, branch where intelligence is uh, still working but uh, the human intelligence uh, was so hard and so difficult to reach people in uh, the GDR on the other hand it was more, even more difficult for East Germans to reach to make contact to the West Berliner, West German side. So very complicated, and uh, for that reason, um, the, the, the humid, the agent itself, uh, was not so important anymore in Berlin, and therefore the electronic uh, intelligence was uh, getting more important. Yeah, I, was gonna say, I mean, technical collection seems to have taken over. I mean, there's that very famous signals intelligence field station in Berlin, um, trying to, I'm blanking on the name. It starts with a T. Teufelsberg. Yeah, there. Yeah, the one that that's up on that hill. Yeah. Um, uh, that essentially takes over a lot of you know where technology is trying to take place of of human intelligence collection. Uh, and does that is that essentially all that's left uh, until the end of the Cold War, until the 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 wall comes down? I would say the most important uh, station was um, Teufelsberg. But uh, Teufelsberg uh, didn't function alone. Uh, Teufelsberg functioned in only in the, in the combination with another big listening station of the Americans in Marienfelde, which is also in West Berlin, and, of course, in Tempelhof. And the fourth uh, pillar was a listening station uh, from the British in Gatow. So these four listening stations together were able to listen uh, 500 kilometers into the Warsaw Pact zone, so that was kind of early warning system. Mm-hmm. Uh, very important, not only for Berlin, but for, for the NATO. NATO. And, and nowadays, um, well, uh, let me, I'll, I'll hold that thought, because I, I do want to ask you about signals intelligence now in Berlin, because it seems like um, with the BND moving into Berlin, uh, that may be kind of reinvigorating Berlin a little bit as a site for signals intelligence. Um, how much or how little can you say about this if you know anything about it? Well, the BND um, obviously took over when the uh, Allies left, but uh, everybody knew that uh, cons- that uh, listening 
to um, Mrs. Merkel's telephone <laughs> and other things that happened. Uh, that the um, yeah ex whistleblowers that uh, told uh, that the German side is you know totally um, under American surveillance, so um, it's it's not a behavior uh, partners would do amongst each other. Yeah. Uh, so that really wa was a breaking point uh, two or three years ago, when it became obvious that everybody is listening to everybody. So and, and, and how much the reaction in Germany was? I, I I've been interesting following this. The reaction in Germany is is a a response to those who lived under Stasi oppression. Uh, was, was, I, mean, I know Angela Merkel uh, comes from the east. Yeah. Um, and you know she lived under that repression where the Stasi was was listening to everybody's conversation and had people, uh, you know, informing on their neighbors and everyone else. How much is there a kind of a visceral reaction to those that remembered the Stasi to what happened a couple of years ago? Well, I think Ms. Merkel was personally disappointed that uh, there is no trust amongst uh, allies because the relationship uh, three or four years ago were pretty good. And uh, well, but then also she learned that uh, it's not a matter of uh, whose chancellor or whose president. They are listening. It's they are listening to each other anyway. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> so doesn't matter if you have good personal relations to anybody. Else. Well, let me let me skip back to the same relation idea because I, I think this is an interesting segue. Um, those in the east and those in the west, even before the wall goes up, um, had been allies just a couple of years earlier than that. Um, what was the intelligence relationship among people who? now saw themselves on opposite sides but had been fighting together just a couple of years before do you mean between east, east and, and the west, west you know they, mm. they had been they had been the third reich you know by until 1945 by the late 1940s they're you know blood enemies at this point fighting on opposite sides I, i'm not i'm asking can you chalk all that up to ideology all of a sudden were the east germans you know hardcore communists and the west were were peace-loving capitalists. I, I can't see the ideological shift happening that quickly. I'm wondering how the relationship uh, in the very beginning, now, generation or two down the road, then they may, may have been more indoctrinated into kind of the East German ideals or the West German ideals, but in 47, 48, 49, even the early 50s, the leadership on both sides are people who were comrades or fighting together during the war. Mm -hmm. uh, has anyone taken a deep dive and look at this and kind of this relationship on a personal level? Well, there at some sometimes there is a split going through families. Yeah. That uh, some part of the family believes that in, in the early years, 46, uh, 47, that the communist way would be the best one to overcome uh, something like a national socialist or fascism at all. And the other side think uh, that you should uh, tend to follow Western democratic ideas, and that would be the best way to overcome fascism and dictatorship. So it's a matter of personal opinion, and sometimes in the same family you have brothers uh, where mm -hmm. one is fighting for uh, the, the Eastern ideas and the other one is fighting for Western democracy ideas. So it's a very personal thing. Well, and I, and I think people don't realize that economics may be secondary to a lot of us, but at the time, 
the German economy had been completely annihilated. I mean, Germany was in ruins, and, and, and it's going to be kind of an economic system, either Western capitalism or Eastern communism, that's going to be the system that rebuilds Germany. Um, it seems, in hindsight, because we know about the last 70 years, uh, that capitalism worked a whole lot better, mainly because West Germany ended up being, I don't know, what, a decade economically ahead of East Germany when the wall fell. Um, but at the time, certainly nobody knew that. And both both uh, sides, the eastern side as well as the western side, were putting a lot of, a lot of effort uh, to convince uh, the people in uh, Germany that their political way uh, would be the best. So, and as I said, uh, if you're living in the eastern side, um, you either believe it or you move to the West. Right. <laughs> But there are also some people who were living in the West and moved to the East because they believed that the Soviet uh, way was the right way to overcome fascism. So a very, very emotional, sometimes emotional, but I think very individual decision. We'll talk about Berlin more in just one minute, but let me tell you a moment to tell you about ZipRecruiter. As I've told you in the past, ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. But what if hiring could be easier, more streamlined, less time-consuming? So even when you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. And this is a really cool concept. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post to help identify the most qualified candidates. So you don't have to waste time sorting through a stack of resumes to find the perfect fit. No wonder 80% of employers who post ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish, all in one place. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, you can post jobs in ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free, by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash spycast. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash spycast. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash spycast. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Well, let's, let's move to 1989s. I think that that's a time period that um, really a, a lot of our listeners, even if they're young, may be a little more familiar with than going back in the 1940s. Um, I, I like to ask this to just about anybody of our age, and looking at you, I think we're, we're in the same ballpark. Um, Where were you in '89? Did you grow up near in Berlin? Did you, did you grow up in the uh, in the West? I assume I grew up in the West. Yeah. And the day the wall came down, I was an exchange student in England. <laughs> so <laughs> I was. Uh, you were not in the right place at the right time. <laughs> no, I, I was not. And uh, I in the my students uh, it was a huge students uh, home. Uh, I was. I think there were only two guys in the TV room. Uh, which has 
nearly 70 or 80 seats. Only two guys there watching the whole night <laughs> when the wall came down. And uh, so I wasn't there, uh, uh, but I uh, was uh, also very emotional. And I honestly, no, no one really believed that would happen, at least so quickly. Right. And uh, so I was following it uh, fr on, on the TV uh, f from uh, Great Britain. <laughs> well, no, you talk about no one could believe, and I think that to me that's an interesting segue because in hindsight, again, as historians, we can kind of track 1989 from the Polish Solidarity Movement gaining traction in the early years to all the other countries following suit when Gorbachev announced he wouldn't essentially engage the Brezhnev doctrine and Eastern Europe, Europe was on its own. We're like point A, point B, point C, point D, and then the wall falls. But that's all in hindsight, right? We're exactly. looking at it in hindsight. So I'm wondering, you as, as an exchange student, as somebody watching from outside of Germany, how much of what was happening in 1989 was a precursor to the wall falling or, or, or did you see changes happening? Yes, obviously. At the time, you yeah. see changes happening in, in, in Poland, as you just said, solid, not only Solidarność, uh, but only uh, other uh, Polish forces were looking for uh, democracy. Uh, but no one could believe that East Germans would follow that mm -hmm. system. Of course, they were supported by the Soviet Union, and if this support will, you know, not be there anymore, uh, w what will happen? But look at North Korea nowadays. Right. So, well, yeah, <laughs> if Eric you Honecker think certainly <laughs> didn't think yeah. that. So it, was uh, uh, it could be a second. Uh, Erich Honecker could be a <laughs> could install a second North Korea yeah. just uh, without the support of the Soviet Union, trying to you know uh, fight out uh, his his uh, way on its own. Do we know now how much the actual people in East Germany knew about what was happening around them in 1989 before November? How much did they know what was happening in Poland and Czechoslovakia and everywhere else? They knew that it's much easier to get uh, out of this Iron Curtain if you go to Czechoslovakia mm -hmm. or to Poland. That's the reason why so many East Germans traveled there and were, were going to the embassies and uh, asking for help. Um, but on the other hand, again, uh, keep in mind that after 40 years, there were also a lot of East Germans who, well, no, well, don't actually see the need to change the system. Mm -hmm. They arranged with the system. Uh, all the ones who did not suffer from the system just lived in the system okay. Um, but I think uh, that it all, so in their imagination, uh, they couldn't think that the wall will come down actually within one night or within one day. When did you go back? When did you uh, first get back to Germany? Uh, that was uh, three or four months afterwards uh, in February, March 1990. So during the reunification conversations yeah. at that time period. And how, had you been to the East before? Yes, I've been okay. uh, the school exchange. A very weird East East uh, <laughs> Germany appears very w weird to me. But what I have in mind that the the time was so unstable. Uh, I know that uh, I think Helmut Kohl uh, erected a ten points plan. So that was his master plan for unification. And I think 
not more than two or three days after he announced this 10 points plan. You know, the re reality was much quicker. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the plan was rubbish because the reality uh, took over and uh, unification came much quicker than everybody thought. Uh, the same year, 3rd October. Yeah. So uh, nobody knew how, after the wall came down, how those two countries should get together. These are dramatically... I mean, people talk today about North Korea and South Korea and unification. Yeah. The North Korean language is completely different than the South. And their, their nutrition, they're, small, they're shorter, they're smaller. That's not necessarily what happened in Germany. But, like we talked about earlier, there was a dramatic difference in GDP and quality of life and economic... Uh, you know, their lifestyle with the middle class was considered on one side versus the other. And then high technology. Uh, how, again, not to age you, but you were an age where you can understand what you saw around you. How much of that was a, a shock to the economic system of Germany moving forward in 1991-92? I think it was a shock when they discovered how badly uh, the German... East German industry actually was. It was uh, nearly on its knees. So one of the reasons why the whole country collapsed. But I think uh, for the West Germans it was a shock when, when they discovered that most of the industry in East Germany uh, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't run that way. So they had to invest a lot of money. Uh, they had to re reteach the people uh, on the new machines. Uh, it, it took it took many many years because um, if you grow up in East Germany and you learn something else and your the the ways there there was full full employment in East Germany and full employment always means that not everybody is working that much yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. So uh, obviously that, that changed, that had to change uh, in, in a unified uh, German. And uh, obviously there were tens of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands uh, who were the losers of the unification. Right. And so still today, to be honest, um, the, the reason why the right-wing party is so popular, uh, especially in the five former countries... Uh, which are the Bundesländer, five Bundesländer, which formerly uh, formed the GDR. They, their vote uh, is approximately 20%. So second biggest party uh, in East Germany are the, the, is the right-wing party, the AFD, at the moment. And I think because there are so many people who uh, felt disappointed uh, who felt that they were not uh, on the winning side of uh, unification. And I think it's not only... It, it's On the one hand, these people themselves, who are now in maybe in their 60s or whatever, uh, but also their kids mm -hmm. that learn from their parents that uh, uh, not everything was bad in the GDR, right. probably not saying... And uh, I think it has a reason why uh, the, the, the right wing is so strong in former East Germany. And, and right and left in Germany is different than right and left in the United <laughs> States, where we're, you know, as, as much as we get on each other, we're, we're, we don't have a true right wing and a true, well, we might have yeah. a little one now, but uh, I think the European version of right and left wing, I think we're talking dramatically different yeah. at the time. Let me ask you about Germany today, because 
despite having to dig East Germany out of the economic hole it was in, uh, Germany is now one of the world's top economic powers. Uh, and it had always been kind of a central economic and military power in Europe. Uh, but recently, and this is not just since uh, the listeners don't jump on me, this is not just since January of this year, mm-hmm. Germany has reasserted itself as one of the great powers in the world. Um, which has responsibilities along with uh, the benefits. Uh, with the Russians starting to bring back some of the old Cold War mentality uh, that we saw uh, and we discussed just you know a couple minutes ago, um, are you starting to see some of this Cold War environment come back to Berlin itself? Unfortunately, uh, I think uh, the answer is yes, uh, because um, the relationship to the Russians is really, really not good. Um, There is no trust uh, on the German side in uh, Russian statements. On On the other hand, the Russians trying to interfere in German politics, Uh, in their news channels um, well in my opinion the Russians are invented fake news (laughs) (laughs) so um, there are many fake news about Germany in the Russian uh, official news channels on on the other hand uh, the Germans don't trust Russian statements anymore so uh, this relationship is uh, really not good, and I can't see uh, any improvement uh, in the relationship, unfortunately. So uh, the Germans are now uh, in between somewhere. The relationship to the Americans, uh, American government is not that good at the moment. So uh, that obviously means that uh, the European nations, especially Germany, France, and Great Britain, even though they, they are looking for a Brexit, uh, they have to strengthen, and they have to uh, strengthen their military and uh, intelligence work, definitely. Have you seen a closening of, of relationships between Germany and Poland, the Baltic states, some of the Eastern European? I mean, one of the great one of the great historical ironies is all of the countries outside of the Soviet Union that used to make up the Warsaw Pact are now NATO nations. <laughs> um has there been a deepening of ties and a relationship with those countries like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, you know, Romania, Czech Republic, all the ones that used to be the bad guys? Yeah. Um, how close is Germany now to them? Pretty close to most of them, uh, but there are two, uh, especially Poland and uh, Hungary, uh, which are not satisfied with the refugee policy of the rest of Europe. So they are strongly fighting against Merkel's policy against the refugee, uh, refugees. And uh, again, Polish and Hungarian uh, relationship to Germany uh, is not so good at the moment. There's a lot of history there, too. <laughs> <laughs> especially between the Poles yeah. and right. the Germans. Um, all right, They're asking for reparations. For the, that's, a, that's a funny thing. Uh, after the Creek ask for reparations I think five years ago during the financial crisis or four years ago now the Polish ask for uh, second world war reparations in 2017 Uh, so I think I think it will last another 100 years before the last nation will ask for reparations long memories (laughs) about that (laughs) let me me ask you about the museum itself because the, the Allied Museum 
essentially springs directly from reunification. I think the first idea, uh, what, what I read was like in 1991 for putting together a museum kind of dedicated yeah. to this alliance. That's right. The idea uh, erected immediately after unification when it was obviously that the Allied forces would leave Berlin. Uh, so we have to commemorate their presence and their stay in the city. And uh, finally, in 1993, it was the decision of the federal government to erect a museum in Berlin that would commemorate the Western Allies' presence. And that is our museum, the Allied Museum. So we have a self-selecting audience. They tend to be fans of intelligence history. There's the, the tens of thousands of people that listen to SpyCast. Uh, many of them are overseas. They're, they're, you know, they may live there. They may be at U.S. military bases in Italy or even in Germany. If they're thinking about going to the Allied Museum, can you talk a little bit about what kind of intelligence exhibits, intelligence artifacts, intelligence-related things that you have on exhibit now, or perhaps stuff you're thinking about for the future, temporary exhibits, if you can let us know a little bit about that also. Just you know, give people an idea of what they will, they'll see if they come to the Allied Museum. Well, of course, we are covering the whole period from 1945 till 1994 when the Allied forces uh, left Berlin. Um, and we cover all nations, all three nations, uh, British, French, and Americans. So the um, biggest item is a plane, a uh, British plane, a Hastings, that was used in the Berlin airlift, 1948-1949. Then we have the original Checkpoint Charlie, um, the very latest version that was dismantled in 1990 uh, for unification. We have a duty train uh, from the French, and we have original pieces uh, of the wall from Potsdamer Platz and uh, original East German watchtower. So these are the big uh, ones, the gate guards, the big items outside the, the buildings. And then inside, as I said, we are telling the history right from uh, 1945 when the Allied forces first entered Berlin, all the new laws uh, they installed, uh, the relationship between the uh, forces and the Berlin population. Uh, the Berlin airlift is a big uh, subject, obviously. And then um, in the other building, we are dealing uh, with um, intelligence um, and also with the Berlin Spy Tunnel, that's a big subject in the second building, and with the day-to-day -day life. What did they do? Um, how did they cooperate with the Berlin authorities? How did they communicate with the Berlin population? Um, things like that. I think right now, through the end of maybe January 2018, you have a, a temporary exhibit focus on like a hundred objects from the Cold War and I was going through the book and there's some extraordinary ones in there like yeah. going you know all the, from the 40s all the way up until right before uh, 1989 yeah. that's right so, so we selected 100 artifacts uh, for the whole period um, 40s into, until 90s that stand for the Cold War in Berlin so um, obviously some of them I just mentioned, it's a tunnel, it's a plane from the air, of it's Checkpoint Charlie, it's a wall. But also uh, little ones, uh, an East German school map from 1989 uh, showing um, 
that there are people living in Brandenburg, Luckenwalde, and East Berlin, and all the towns around Berlin, but showing just a green, an open green field for West Berlin. <laughs> so that was official <laughs> they, school map. They literally <laughs> wrote West Berlin <laughs> off the map. Yeah, for these right. <laughs> so that's still an official school map that was produced in 1989. So until the very end, they just neglected. <laughs> there, there, there's another side opposite. That there's uh, yeah. another side. Uh, th that's uh, so funny. A couple of weeks uh, ago, we actually had a podcast with um, a former U.S. Army Special Forces um, member who was stationed in Berlin during the Cold War. Uh, and you have um, a Purple Heart as one of the hundred items. Can you tell a little bit about that? Because I think they've heard that story. Uh, the Purple Heart of uh, Major Nicholson, who was uh, shot um, in 1985 in East Germany. And some very prominent newspaper in Germany, the Bild Zeitung, uh, called him uh, the last victim of the Cold War. So he was a member of the uh, missions I mentioned earlier, the military missions that were able to enter uh, East Germany for some uh, yeah, liaison uh, reasons, but in fact they did intelligence work. And uh, these missions were never armed, so they only were carrying binoculars and photo equipment uh, with them. And there were two um, fatal casualties. One, um, one car of the French mission was knocked by an East German lorry, and the driver was killed. Uh, as we knew today, uh, this was done on purpose. Mm -hmm. And one year later, um, Major Nicholson was shot on one of his missions by a Russian sentry. And um, yeah, and 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 this this uh, casualty of Major Nixon went so high it even was on the agenda between Reagan and Gorbachev when they met in Reykjavik. So in Reykjavik, they were obviously talking about um, uh, atomic weapons and stuff like this, but also on the agenda was Major Nixon, who mm. was shot by a Russian sentry. Well, Bern von Koska is the acting director of the Allied Museum in Berlin. Uh, again, if you're there, uh, it's a must-see. Uh, we, we, we love our relationship with them. The reason we have a piece of the Berlin Tunnel uh, is because Bern thought of us uh, when, he, uh, when he heard there were pieces out there that were available. Uh, so we thank him for that. If you do speak German, you should check out Bern's book, Capital Spies, Secret Services in Berlin in the Cold War. But if you don't, uh, go to the Allied Museum website, which is also trilingual, uh, and you can not only learn about the museum, but you can also see some of their publications, uh, which are amazing. Uh, we have a bunch of them here uh, that are in English uh, as well. Uh, so, Baron, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. We truly appreciate it. And I want to mention that the entrance of the Allied Museum is free. So come whenever you like and with many people, as many as you want. Thank you. Thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. We'd like to thank Movement Watches for continuing to support the SpyCast family. Remember, you can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movement.com slash spycast. And you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free, by going to ziprecruiter.com slash spycast. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here. 
your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. 